And so we make commitments, we make vows to one another when we get married. Well, when we, when we join the church, there's a similar component that we are, we are coming into agreement, but we need to re-examine. Coming into agreement with who to do what. And this is something that, quite honestly, is just not spelled out often. And so the values that drive the church don't ever get in front of the church. And so we just find ourselves, we're in this landscape. I mean, literally, you can drive down city streets in Jefferson Parish or New Orleans, and you'll see churches every few blocks. There's churches. And at some point in your life, if you decide, well, you know, culture, that's what people do in America. You know, you get involved in church, you know, I'll I'll go there. And you can almost have the same arrangement or agreement there as you do when you go to Winn-Dixie or Save a Center. Right, I mean, you you in agreement with anything when you go? I mean, other than not stealing when you're there, right? You just go in, you shop, you buy, you leave. There's no agreement there. I mean, you're not met by somebody at the front door who says, "Now remember the covenant that we're in together." No. Well, you're just shopping for groceries. But when you come into the church, we're we're walking together, and it's important that we understand. Well, what are we walking together to do? And so we we felt like. What we wanted to do with a series called The Church Covenant uh, was to identify what the Bible calls every believer to be subscribing to in order to be a part of the church. Now, what these, what these values are that we're walking through, they're not Lakeview Christian Center's 2007 values, and everybody needs to sign on for them. Uh, no, they're biblical values for anybody who is in the local church. And we want to come into agreement on those things. We want to first identify them. I don't know if we've ever taken the time individually to study through what is the Bible calling me to agree with in order to be part of the church. And so that's what this series is about. And the last uh, message that we came to in the series that we steered off from was was, uh, the commitment to church discipline. You remember back that far? That, That we're to be committed to church discipline. And as we studied through the scriptures, we found out that God... God is interested in the manner of our lives, how we live our lives toward each other, and that there can be a time in which perhaps someone's life can begin to get involved in sin and the practice of sin in a way that the appropriate thing for the church to do is to approach that individual with the hopes of repentance, which, you know, anytime you're hoping for repentance, you're telling somebody what you're doing is wrong. So biblically, it's right for the church to tell people, you're wrong. And then if that person refuses to come into agreement with biblical values and says, either I know I'm wrong, but I'm not going to change, or I don't know that I agree with you. I think it's fine for me to do this, but it's clearly a violation of Scripture. Then the church has a mandate on it, not an option, a mandate on it to deal with that individual in such a way that requires them to be put out of the church. And, you know, that idea, you know, it doesn't float real well in, in modern church settings because, quite honestly, what most churches are after is people. They're after people. We just want to get people in this building. That's what we want. We want to fill the place up with people. We want more people. And so to embrace a value that says, no, this is a subtraction issue. This is, this is reducing people in the church. That's not something churches want to embrace, but they don't want to embrace it because they have bought into a value system that says uh, bigger is better. More is where we're going. We just want people. But you know, that's not how the Bible sounds when it comes to 
the church. And the reason that we got steered off into the presence of God series was we had to go back to re-examine what is this gathering ultimately about. And we look back in Exodus chapter 25 when God said, take up for me an offering and build for me a tabernacle so that my presence may dwell among you. What is this, what is this gathering about? It is, it is a, a setting for the presence of God. Now, if that's why this exists, not just to pile people in the building, but if it's a setting for the presence of God, then sin in our lives becomes a major issue because sin grieves the presence of God. Sin quenches the moving of the Spirit of God. And so that's where we, we ended off going off into a, a study on the presence of God. Because if, if we're not aware of what the presence of God is and how God wants it to be interacting in our lives, then quite honestly, you can't possibly be building the church. You could build a social group. You could build a country club, sporting events, entertainment, motivational talks. You can build all that, but you can't build the church without understanding that the church is primarily a place for the presence of God. I put this this passage in your outline because there's a little bit of an attitude in it that I love and I want it in me and I want it in us as a church. In First Chronicles 22, this the setting for this is, you know, this is years after God has revealed to Moses, build me a tabernacle so that I can dwell in your in your midst. And that tabernacle eventually is going to become the temple, that Old Testament building with all of its grandeur, is going to be created. Well, we're right on the line here between going from tabernacle to temple. So God's about to, you know, David has developed in his heart this sense of, I am dwelling in, in a palace as the king, but God's presence dwells in a tent. And there's a jealousy in David that he says, I want to build a house for the glory of God. And you want to know why the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart? I think the answer is in that. A lot of people wonder, what what made David a man after God's own heart? I mean, David screwed up. I mean, David had problems. David was not a perfect man. But David gets this, this great title, the man after God's own heart. Why was it? Well, because I think he was primarily interested in what God was primarily interested in. A place for the presence of God. And he became jealous for God to have a place. And he began to think, what kind of a place would I prepare for the presence of God? Now, remember, God kind of adjusts some of that. It's like, you know, you're a man. What are you going to build for me? Let me just make sure you get this right. You can attempt to do that. I'm glad you have a heart to do it. But, but what could you possibly build for me? But that the heart of David is a heart that this place matters. The church matters. It's of great value. Listen to what he says there in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 2. David commanded to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel. And he set stone cutters to prepare dressed stones for building the house of God. And actually, what David did is David went out and got the best craftsmen he could find in the world. So these were world-renowned individuals. And he brought them in to prepare dressed stones. So he was going to, from the outset, the foundations and the walls and all that was going to be done was going to be done with excellence. David also provided great quantities of iron for nails for the doors of the gates and for clamps, as well as bronze in quantities beyond weighing and cedar timbers without number for the Sidonians and Tyranians brought great quantities of cedar to David. 
For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced. And the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all lands. Do you see what happens here? When something becomes for God, immediately we're willing to upgrade it. If our heart is for God. Spare no expense. Bring the best. And the Bible, actually, when you look at the offerings that were brought, David emptied his own treasury into the, into the house of God. David not only took collections from people, but he was the king. He'd been amassing wealth for years. And he begins to take that wealth and spend it on the house of God. Gold he gives and bronze and precious stones. And he hires the best. See, there's something in David that says, this is a house for God. Spare no expense. Make it excellent. And I think that's the attitude that's supposed to be in the people of God today. Not so much for a building, as much as for the place for God's presence. The attitude that should be in us is let this place be a place of excellence. Our attitude toward it should be spare no expense. Now, obviously, I use the word expense, we immediately think of finances. And quite honestly, we should spare no expense in that category either. We should find in our lives that, that what we believe about God, for Him to be most excellent, shows up in the way in which we handle our money. And quite honestly, we, we spend our money on what we value the most. And what our money usually reveals to us is we value our comfort the most. We value our comfortable lives. We value our comfortable settings. We value uh, things that will entertain us and create a sense of well-being and comfort. We value that, so we spend money on it. But I want to be more like David. I want to have a heart that says, God, above all other things, I value you. And I'm building a place for you. So with my life, with my time, with my attitude, with my integrity of what I do in private, that I bring to this meeting when I come together, God, I present you with excellence. Not uh, nominal Christianity, but excellent Christianity that has seized our hearts. Why? Because the temple, the dwelling place, is for the Lord. Now, that was our steering off into the presence of God series. And I want to take us back now to the church covenant series. But the same attitude is in it. What we're committing to as a group of people who are coming together to do one thing together like, if we don't commit to the same things, we can't do one thing together. I mean, obvious case in point. Uh, we used to meet, we still meet on Sundays, but we used to all meet on Sundays. We moved that meeting to Saturday. If everybody didn't get in agreement with that, there'd be nobody here. Or maybe a handful of people here this morning. But we all got in agreement with that. We said, hey, look, that's what we need to do right now. I'll be there on Saturday. I'll adjust my life. I'll adjust my schedule. And here I am. We come into agreement in order to accomplish something together. Which takes us to the, to the issue of uh, addressing today, I want to address being committed to biblical leadership. Are we all committed to biblical leadership? And if you go back to the mission statement for the church, you know, leadership is, is valuable when there's movement. Leadership is valuable when there's a task, when there's something to do. Uh, if there's nothing to do, there's no agenda, nobody's going to be doing anything, you really don't need any leaders in that moment. You need leadership when there is a task to be accomplished. 
So the church, the very nature of the church, that word in the Greek for church, ekklesia, is the called out ones, the ones who are called out and gathered together. But gathered together for what? Is the church just a stopover point where we're gathered out of the world and we, and we wait? <laughs> Years ago, somebody gave me, I, I had a little bus in my uh, office, a little matchbox bus. Y'all remember this message from years ago? You know, where the church is nothing more than, than Christians waiting for the Jesus bus. You'd come pick us up on our way to heaven. We've been saved and we're called out and now we're all, this is a bus stop. That's what this is. So we all gather to the bus stop. We know we don't have a mission in life. We're just gathered to the bus stop waiting for the Jesus bus to come get us and take us to heaven. <laughs> Somebody actually took a little matchbox bus, painted it, put little Jesus stickers all over it for me. I had it in my office. It got flooded. But that's, that's not the mission. If that was the mission, then we wouldn't really need much by way of direction. Just, you know, it'd be kind of like pray the sinner's prayer and stand right here. And that would be the Bible. I mean, that'd be, you know, you just pull a whole bunch of stuff out. Pray the prayer and, and hold still. But that's not the Bible, is it? The Bible's got all kinds of activity and drama and action and, and calling for us. And you know, as I look through that, let me just give you a real quick scenario. What I think missional components, if I could boil them down into four large categories. You know, the first would be just... The revealing of God's glory. The mission for the church is to reveal the glory of God. And that can happen in so many ways. Remember, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him. You might make known upon the earth the glory of God. And what, we have so many opportunities to do this, we do it in our character. We do it when sin gets restrained and righteousness is loved. We do it when we go hard after God. We do it in our marriages. We do it as a single person who walks in purity and self-sacrifice. We do it in all those categories. Every one of those moments is a declaration that God and His greatness has conquered me and my selfishness. Every one of those acts. We put on the display of the glory of God. The, the mission of the church is worship. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You would be passionate toward God. He would be preeminent in your thoughts. Worship is an expression of affection. It's not, it's not, it's not some form of liturgy. It is an affair of the heart before God. Salvation is a mission of the church. The Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a command. That, you know, don't, don't wait at the bus stop. Get out into the earth and be salt and light. You're on a mission. You're called to something. Sanctification is a huge aspect of the mission of the church. The care and growth and strengthening and protecting of believers who come into a relationship with Christ and then who are now called to go from our rebellious, sinful lives into conformity more and more and more into the image of His Son. Well, see, all these things involve movement. They involve activity. They involve us getting from here to there. So even if we know that these things are what the Bible calls us to do, the next question has to be, how do we do it? How do we take all these people, all the Christians, all over the earth, and bring them together to accomplish these elements. 
But I think the second you embrace how you do it, you, you now have stepped into the realm of biblical leadership. How does God lead his people? If you look real quickly with me, look in Ephesians chapter 4. But there would be several places that we could bring together Scripture to give us a concise statement of God's mission and our call to answer that as well as scriptures that highlight the role of leaders. But let me this this verse probably <clears throat> jumps out at me first in that regard. You just want a just an overview mission statement of the church <clears throat> and the realm that should have leadership in it. You find it here. Ephesians four verse one. Paul, writing to this group of believers in Ephesus, says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, if you, if you read your Bible curiously, which I hope all of you do, a curious point here is, is, Paul, who are you to be urging anybody? Paul is somebody to these people. When you read and you, and you listen to the way he sounds, to the way he interacts, to the advice and counsel that he gives. Listen, you know, you let a stranger come walking up to you and give you counsel and advice. It's, you almost you almost would do that to him. What? You know, let some eight-year-old come find you in the parking lot and say, "Excuse me, can I talk to you for a second? Listen, I need to I need to ask you. Next time you pull in the into the parking lot." If you would park this way, you back up this way. Yeah, you look at that eight-year-old like, like this doesn't fit. You, you relating to me this way doesn't fit. Paul assumes something here that's given to him because he is given to lead the church. It's, he's right to be urging them and instructing them in how they walk. He's butting into their lives. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, here's a voice that steps into the church and he does so. This is this is a sanctification element. This is this is a, a leader telling the church, here's how your life should sound. Here's what it should look like. Here's the flavoring of it. So, you know, if, we, if we're being impatient, if we're, you know, I don't have time for all that, and we're arrogant, and who do you think you are? Paul, mind your own business. Paul assumes it's right for him to say, don't live like that. Live like this. And that's because of the role that he's been called to. Look in verse 4. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, you have to read that word all in the context of this letter. This is not, many people do this. I hope this is a helpful tip for some here who are just learning how to read the Bible. Paul is writing to believers in the city of Ephesus. He's not writing to the Times-Picayune in a city that just gets generally published to anybody and everybody who reads it. If you don't understand that when you read the Bible, what you'll develop is a doctrine of universalism. You'll develop this idea that God relates to everybody the same way. He speaks to all of creation the same way. And he doesn't. And we may not like that because, you know, we're Americans, one one man, one vote. Uh, But God's not an American. You haven't figured that out yet. 
And he runs his universe the way he sees fit to run it. And he is writing a letter through the Apostle Paul to believers. And so when this word says all, one God and Father of all, that is not a doctrine that says everybody on the planet has one God and Father. That's not what that says. Okay, if I was here this morning, I'd say all of us, um, all of us will be receiving $100. Well, it would be wrong for somebody outside of this meeting to go, hey, man, where's my hundred bucks? I wasn't talking about you. I was talking about all of us. So that's the tone of this. But what Paul is saying here, he, he puts everybody on common ground here. We all have one faith. We have one God. We're together in this. There's no distinction. You don't have a God and I have a different God. We have one Father. We relate to God the same way. We're all in one faith together. So there's a commonality that he emphasizes. But he's about to shift into something else here. He goes from all, in verse 6, to verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us. Now, he's gone from all of us to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, skip down to verse 11, and you find out what these gifts are. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now, do you just get a tone of something here? I don't want to really take this passage all apart. Can you just get a tone of something here? In Ephesians 4, there's something to be done. There's a task, and it's given to the church. It's the, the body being built up. That's a task. I believe that that primarily has to do with sanctification and growth and maturity and growing in the image of Christ. That's a task. Every one of us has that task before us. I think it also has to do with building up the body by adding numerically to the church, by those who would be saved. And along this process, we're moving from one level of maturity to another. See, now there's movement. And anytime there's movement, there needs to be instruction and direction. And anytime you find instruction and direction, you find leaders. Just a biblical principle that's there. There's not only movement, but there's also protection here. that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunningness, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So when you, when you find these components, when you find movement, direction, instruction, and protection, you find a context that needs leadership in it. And that's exactly what this verse is about. God says, you know, amongst all that I've done, you are all common together. But grace has been given to each of you that God has chosen for there to be variety in the midst of all of us being unified and the same. So in one sense, we're all the same. In another sense, we're different by God's design. And those differences are there to help accomplish the mission of the church. So therefore, we, we have created, in just looking at the Bible, a context for leaders. And in this context, they are explained as being apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So in the church, 
there is something called leaders. Now, I put in your outline this, this note. Human leadership, human leadership is God's means and his idea. Human leadership is God's means and it's his idea. Now, listen, this is, this is critical if you're ever going to be receiving of leadership in whatever form it needs to come into your life. It's God's idea. It's not the person who's leading idea. See, all over our life, we are called into settings where there's lines of authority, where there are those who are given to relate differently and have different responsibilities. God set that up. It's God's means of doing something good in our lives. And so, you know, we were talking this morning about the church, but this is true in the family as well. The husbands are the head of the wives. You know, that, that's not because the wife voted it to be that way. It's not because, uh, you know, there was a, uh, an opinion poll taken, and, and right now in 2007 we think we're going to keep that one more year. It just says they are. It's a fact of life. Husbands are the head. You can't make them not the head. They can be dysfunctional heads. They can abdicate as heads, but you can't make them something other than what they are because God designed it that way. Wives, submit to your husbands, to those lines of authority. God created them. God established them. Now, you know, when your husband gives instruction to you and crosses your will, which, by the way, is the only time any of this stuff really matters, isn't it? <laughs> I love that word submission when we all agree. Um, no problem, honey. I'll take care of that. <laughs> well, it's because you agree with me. Well, you don't want to do this, but I think it's what you need to do, so I'm asking you to do it. Now, in that moment, you've just graduated from agreement to submission. At this, you, you weren't submitting before. Well, I guess you were. But you were in agreement and submission was easy. Now, when your will is being touched and changed and altered by the voice of another, now, now you're having to ask, will I submit to this? And in that moment, it's very important that you recognize whose idea is this. Did your husband's idea that he be in charge? Because when his will crosses your will, and if this is his idea, you want to disqualify him immediately based on that. You know, you're just... Just looking to get your way. You know, whatever reason you can corrupt that whole input that he has. Uh, like, same thing is true for kids. God has established parents to lead and for children to honor and obey. That's God's idea. If you think it's your parents' idea, then it's going to rub you the wrong way. Anytime that they interfere in your life and adjust something that you're doing or their voice is heard in your walk. God came up with this idea. And in the church, it's God's idea. And there's something in us that doesn't like the idea. It's called pride. You know, in, in me is this sense of, you know, you're not the boss of me. Who died and left you king? Who does he think he is? Right? What is all that saying? All that's saying is, hey, we're all on equal ground. He puts his pants on one leg at a time just like I do. Okay, and so we're looking for reasons. See, it's that it's that reading Ephesians four without reading all of Ephesians four kind of idea. Well, we're all putting our pants on. We, we all are the same. But in the economy of God, we all are the same. And yet we are called to be different in some ways. And so God comes up with this idea that he says, I, I'm, I'm going to want some to lead and others to follow. 
so that my church can accomplish all of its mission. Now, if we're just waiting at the bus stop, nobody needs to be in charge, right? Church has got nothing to do, doesn't need to be led, it doesn't need to be instructed. But if a church is going somewhere, it's got to have leadership in it. Now, look at this biblical metaphor, and let's draw some ideas about leadership from it. Throughout Scripture, there's this biblical picture of sheep and shepherds. And God uses that illustration, obviously, because it was a very common image in the day in which it was spoken. But look at Ezekiel chapter 34 in your outline there, verse 11. It says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. Verse 15 says, I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. There's a great picture here. If you want to know what the care of a shepherd is to look like, that passage probably covers it. If you, if you look at all the things that God intends to do, he says, I'm going to be the shepherd for my people. I'm going to care for them. I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to feed them. I'm going to lead them. I'm going to seek them. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to bind them up and I'm going to strengthen them. That's the ministry of a shepherd. And God says, I'm going to be that to my people. I'm going to make sure what they receive into their lives is leading, care, deliverance, being brought back, being nurtured, being strengthened. God says, I'm going to make sure that happens. Now, that's what he intends to do. Now, the question is, how does he intend to do it? Numbers chapter 27, verse 15, your outline. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. Appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep with no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand on him. Now, what's interesting in this passage is that God has made it clear that he loves his people. God has made it clear that he will care for his people. God has made it clear that he is the shepherd of his people. And when Moses stands before God and suggests, appoint a man to lead them so that they won't be like sheep without a shepherd, that statement doesn't insult God. And God doesn't rail on Moses for suggesting such a foolish, idiotic thing. How dare you act as though my people, of whom I'm the shepherd, could possibly be like sheep without a shepherd. How dare you suggest that I point, Moses, do you know what goofballs are out there? Do you know what candidates I have to work with? You must be crazy. Appoint a man. Why? So they can be led into a mess? That's not God's response. God immediately, this is toward the end of Moses' life, his ministry as leading and shepherding the people of God is about to come to an end. God says, God says, take Joshua. Joshua is God's idea. 
Joshua is God's appointment, God's selection, and God is going to anoint him to lead his people. Leadership through human means is God's idea. It's God's doing. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 14. says, Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. When God calls his people and he gathers them and he says, come, I'm going to take you from here and here and here. And isn't that what God's done here today in our own lives? God has taken us, one from this family, one from that one. God in his grace has come to our lives and he's gathered us together. And he tells the Israelites and he tells us, I'm going to give you shepherds. Because I want you to be cared for, led, delivered, strengthened. I'm going to give you shepherds so that that will happen. And this is not just an Old Testament idea. When we walk all the way in the New Testament, this idea never goes away. God shepherding his people through human institution never disappears. Remember the the last exchange between Jesus and, and the Gospel of John with his disciples. He's restoring Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Tend my sheep. And that word tend in the Greek is the word poimano. It's the word for pastor. It's the same word used for shepherd. Peter, I want you to shepherd my sheep. That's what I'm calling you to do. I'm appointing you as a shepherd to my people. So the same idea that was present back when Joshua was being appointed was present when Jeremiah was prophesying, is present in the New Testament as well. And then once we even get into the church being established and up and going and running, 1 Peter 5, here is Peter functioning as a shepherd. And he says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. There's the mandate that Peter recognized human institution is to be involved in shepherding the people of God. He was appointed to shepherd. He turns to these other elders who are leading and he says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Now there's a distinction, right? Chief shepherd, other shepherds. This is a means for the shepherd to shepherd his sheep. It's the means he chooses to use. And the instruction here is toward shepherds in their their attitude, their embracing of the task, their responsibility, etc. Now, God, and we're talking about commitment here today, about being committed to biblical leadership. God is committed to human leadership. He's committed to it. And the question for us is, are we committed to it? Now, I just want to draw some observations out of a few passages here. Because, you know, when you put reality to these ideas... Um, they're not always the easiest ideas. I mean, so far, uh, you know, we're kind of, by the sheer logic and weight of Scripture, we're forced to say whether I like these ideas or not, they are what they are. They're there, and okay, I'm convinced. 
That doesn't mean I like it. Right? Wives, submit to your husbands. Okay, it is there. It doesn't mean I like it. There are times in which I don't like that idea. One of the times you don't like that idea, uh, either when your husband's being sinful or you're being sinful, or when you're just encountering the weakness of his life. And in moments, we don't always like what is clearly a biblical idea. Right? Turn to Jeremiah 23. There's a great lesson to be learned in this passage about our view of biblical leadership. It highlights the reality that embracing human leadership has its challenges. It's just not always easy to embrace human leadership. We can embrace the fact that God is our shepherd. He's our father. He's an authority over us. Nobody wants to balk at that. But when it comes to uh, somebody who is one of us having influence and authority and instructive components in our lives, it can be difficult to want to embrace that. Listen to this problem here in Jeremiah 23. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Reality number one. Human shepherds fail. For a variety of reasons. The description of of these shepherds were a failing to attend to the sheep, either neglect, um, caused perhaps by selfish pursuits, selfish ambitions, using and abusing their power and the privileges that were theirs as a result of being in a position of leading and influencing others. But for some reason, however it panned out, these leaders had failed, and the, and the effect of their failure was that the sheep began to be scattered. Instead of gathering together and staying on task, now they're beginning to splinter, and a few are going off this way, and a few are going off this way, and a few are going off this way, and they're beginning to be spread out. And when you get spread out as sheep, you become vulnerable to attack. And God becomes passionate and jealous for His people to remain protected and strengthened and directed. But here's a reality. Shepherds fail. You're going to be a part of a church. You're going to be led by human leadership. And that human leadership is going to fail. Now, the degree of which it fails can vary from place to place. But on the best day, at some point, the human leadership involved in your life is going to fall short, at least, of your expectations. You're going to wish they had done something different in your life. You're going to feel neglected. You're going to feel at odds with advice or counsel or how you were handled, how you were spoken to. You're going to feel like the human leadership in my life has failed. And listen, failure, and this is going to be true, this is just a word of advice for kids relating to your parents, 
husbands and wives relating. You know, failure comes into our lives for, for I think, two main categories of reasons. One would be sin. We, we love pleasure in, a, in the wrong category, and therefore we sin, and somebody else that we're responsible for pays the price. And there's been a lot of that in the body of Christ. I want to ask for a show of hands. I don't want to create a sense of discomfort, but I would be curious to know how many of you have come from a church uh, where there has been failure of the leadership in the church that you have had to put your life back together as a result of it. I want to ask you to show your hands. But there has been quite a bit of that. Failure can come from sin. Failure can also come from weakness, which is not quite the same animal. Weakness has to do with the individual capacity of leaders, the fact that there's 24 hours in the day, the fact that there are limitations in gifting, in energy, in age. There's a number of factors that make an individual simply not capable of going this far, of only capable of going this far. Well, that distance that fails to get done ends up touching your life somehow. And so, you know, you, you didn't get to me. You didn't call me. You didn't call me. You, didn't you know what was going on? This was, I needed to hear from you. Okay, well, did someone not call you because in their heart they just don't like you? I don't like you. I'm calling you back. You know, let your relatives call me when you're dead. I'll do your funeral. But I just don't like you. That's sin, right? Which is different than... I couldn't get to it because I have an aversion to it. I love you, want to, eager to. These things occurred alongside these things, and, and human capacity met its limit. And you can be disappointed in that process. Shepherds will fail, some because of sinful reasons, some because of reasons of weakness. But the human institution invested with the responsibility to lead the people of God has failure written in its genes. Now watch this interesting response, though, in verse 3. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. And I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any missing, any be missing, declares the Lord. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Time out. Wait a minute, God. Can we can we rethink this? You just showed us that shepherds fail. They mess up. The first two verses. They have they have been the cause of scattering your sheep. Whoa, whoa, let's not rush back into that. That was a bad deal. You're not going to appoint more, are you? I mean, you're not going, haven't you proven this, God? This is a bad idea. It's been a bad idea for a long time. God, this is not new. I know you're watching the charts. I know you see this. These guys keep screwing up. You know, example, they're not providing an example. They're providing a bad example. They lead in the wrong direction. I mean, do I have to get out the list of all the kings of of Judah and Jerusalem? Uh, Just so you can see where Israel has been because of bad leadership. What's interesting is God doesn't abandon the idea of human leadership. He goes right back to it. Right against the backdrop that people mess up. Now, can I, can I say this to some who are here and perhaps maybe some that will listen to a message like this by tape? 
who have been in a setting where a church has been poorly led. There's been leadership failure. There's been poor direction given to the church. There's been deceit amongst leadership in the church. And what it does to the church is it, it creates this disillusioning effect to where we don't, we don't want to become vulnerable to that again. We don't want to embrace leadership again. We want to keep leadership at a distance. We don't want to set any expectations on leadership because they're just going to let us down. And so we begin to back away from that. And eventually when you back away from it, it's very hard to follow leaders that you feel that way toward. Like, you know, listen, and it keeps nothing personal. I, you know, I've been in the church for a little while. You know, I don't even know. But I'm coming from a background where I've got this and this happened and then this happened. And, and what I see happen in those settings is people never again. Listen, they don't never again just not embrace leadership. They never again embrace the church in a biblical fashion either. Because quite honestly, if you don't embrace the leadership of the church, listen to me, you really can't embrace the church either. Because by God's design, leaders are called to stand in front of a gathering and say, everybody, this way, this way, right now for us, this way, quickly, this way. And leadership that is to be a gift to bless and care for people is intended for everybody to follow its benefit. But a person who says, you know, "Ah, that sounds like something I heard before. I I don't know if I want to follow that. Well, then you're going to have a hard time being a part of this group that us all seeking to follow that. See, you, you're fooling yourself to think you can be a part of a church and not embrace the leadership of the church. But I've been burned. Well, I understand that. And I've seen people get burned in church. I've seen people come into the church from places when they've been burned. And, and uh, it, it, is, it is sad that it happens. It has effect. It is something to be overcome. But can I encourage you? It has to be overcome come it has to be i mean in this passage you don't get much more of a scathing thing when 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 the words of the prophet start with woe in the bible you got a problem on your hands and so this is obviously a huge problem and god two verses later turns around and says i'm going to put shepherds back amongst my people god doesn't abandon that idea you and i can't either and, and in this setting where there is leadership, it says, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. This is where sheep are the healthiest, when they are in a fold. A fold was an identified group of, of sheep. You know, if you, had, if you had visited the countryside of Jerusalem, especially around festivals, or where lambs were being slaughtered, you would have found hundreds of folds filling the countrysides. Now, what, what made this 47 sheep distinct from this 68 sheep? They're all sheep, and they're right next door to each other. But this one's in one fold, and these are in another fold. What made them distinct were the shepherds that they were following. And when that shepherd decided, time for us to go, and, you know, and he rang his bell or he had his voice that he used to call them out, and his little sound that he'd make, you know, it's kind of like your dog knows you. Right? Go to a park where there's hundreds of dogs. You know, he doesn't just become everybody's property, does he? He could be a, one of a hundred dogs, but when you call his name and you go get in the car, he's coming with you. What makes the dog who he is? His relationship to you. 
What makes a fold what it is? It's relationship to the shepherds. And so these sheep follow shepherds. They're in a fold and they flourish in a fold and they multiply in a fold. The fold is a place of health for sheep. But the shepherd is involved with that being a place of health to the sheep. You skip down into chapter 23, verse 18. This is an an admonition. I want to make sure we hear this as leaders. Biblical admonitions for leaders and followers in this context. Verse 18, listen, it says, For who among them, speaking of these shepherds, who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. Now, that's, the, that's Jeremiah's word from the Lord, which was very different than the word that other, quote, shepherds were telling the people because they had not been with God. He says, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. What would have been the cause and effect for the people of God being protected from the idolatry that was engulfing them in this moment? Shepherds who had stood in the presence of God and had God's heart and God's agenda to be able to proclaim it back to the people. This, 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 is, this is an indictment for too many pastors. It's an indictment for leadership in the, in the modern body of Christ. There's not enough voices of people who are given to lead who sound like what God sounded like. There's not enough. And, and the, where, where the fault is... Who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord? You're going to stand. Let me, let me admonish. I, this is an admonishment for myself. It's for every pastor and for all who are part of influencing leadership and its capacity in this church. It, it's very easy to sort of get this enamoring with the role of leadership, with the profile of leadership. You know, what we value uh, is in, in the body of Christ is maturity in Christ. We value godliness in Christ. We speak highly of it. So if you can just get into that category where you're seen that way, where you can get in the public eye as you're, you're one of the leaders, can I have all the leaders come forward, can be a moment of horrific pride in the church where, where leaders are so glad to be identified in the midst. And some who have selfish ambition, who probably have the hardest time with those moments of identification because they want to be seen that way. So we want we want public persona, but what the Bible cries out for for a leader is private integrity. See, any idiot can stand up in front of a group of people and talk. Any idiot can do that. Anybody can stand and 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 find something to fill up something about. Read an article, repeat something you've heard. But the problem in this passage was that they hadn't heard from God. Let the prophet who has my word declare my word. That didn't mean these other guys were silent. They didn't have God's word. They just said something else. They, they directed in a different way. They led out of something else besides the voice of God. Listen, if you and I are called to lead, then we're called to listen. 
Because if I haven't heard anything from God, I don't have anything to say. Oh, understand, i got a lot to say. You understand? There's a lot of junk floating around in my head. But is it what God wants to say right now? Is it the way God wants to sound right now to his church? That he is seeking to have leaders who care and protect and lead and admonish and strengthen through his voice into the church. It can get very easy. Your covenant group leader, the pastors, it can get very easy to only do the public element of leading. It can become very easy to do that. Doing the private element is the hard work, the waiting on God, the creating a life that has room to wait on God in it. When we want to do so many other things, we want to be around so many other people, we can become, you know, one of the problems many leaders have is, is they lead because they're people pleasers. They love the applause of people. And it's what drives them to want to be leaders sometimes. And the more applause you can get from people, the more you want people at the expense of pursuing God. Next thing you know, you're a leader who hasn't been around God, and you don't even know who God is anymore. You don't know what he sounds like. You don't have an edge on you. You don't smell like him. But you'll run after people in a second. You're available to them constantly. See, that, that looks like great leadership, doesn't it? Until you read this passage. And you find out if you're leading... And you don't have anything from God for the people that you're given to lead. And you're, you're telling them something. You're just not telling them what God sounds like. And you're hindering their ability to follow God. The reality of being a shepherd is, is if you're a shepherd, shepherds lay down their life for the sheep. They lay it down. Leading others is very, very inconvenient. I mean, just... Anytime you get involved with people, it's inconvenient, isn't it? Get married. It's inconvenient. Have children. It's inconvenient. The more you multiply people in your life, the more inconvenient it becomes. And so if you're just, if you're a normal person, you already have a, a circle of people that are in your life. Well, then the second you embrace any dynamic of leading, now you've got more people in your life. And all of a sudden, life has become more complicated, more difficult, more burdens, more expectations. But the reality is, if, if there's in you a heart to shepherd the people of God, shepherds lay down their lives. To lead costs you your life. That's what shepherds do. Remember, shepherds is God's idea. And if you're ever going to lead, it's going to cost you to lead. If it doesn't cost you, I guarantee you, you are not shepherding those people. It doesn't irritate you, aggravate you, inconvenience you, distract you, burden you. Those are lovely sounding words, aren't they? We have a leadership sign-up class right after this. But see, when God calls, you'll answer. He'll answer. If God calls you to lead, he'll put in your heart something that you want to actually do those things, even if it costs you your life. I have too much to say and not enough time. What's new, huh? <laughs> All right, I'm going to edit here. Let me just make a couple of points here, and you can go back and look at the references. Because when we see elders, shepherds, 
functioning in the New Testament. There's a passage in Acts chapter 20 where Paul is about to pass by Ephesus. And on his way, he calls to Ephesus for the elders. Now, I want to make a point of that because we, we live in a world... Actually, there's some movements in the body of Christ right now that are laying aside what's obvious in Scripture. Quite honestly, it's obvious in Scripture. And trying to create the idea, again, it's that all thing without the each thing happening. It's all in each. It's all of us are common. Each of us are grace gifted in different ways. So there is distinction. But again, if you get imbalanced in your theology, no, no, all of us are common. There's no leaders. We're all the same. You know, we just show up. We just show up for a meeting. We just, you know, people just come together. There's no pastors. We just come together. And one has a psalm. Isn't that what 1 Corinthians says? One has a psalm. One has a prophecy. One has a word. You know, we just, you know, we just, it's just an open meeting. That's what it is. Um, when Paul was passing by Ephesus, he didn't call for the whole church to come visit him. He called for the elders specifically an identifiable group within the church. When Paul wrote to the Philippians, he specifically wrote to the overseers, identified them separately from the church, the overseers and the deacons. Throughout Scripture, God identifies leaders. Leaders, this is important in the next step of following leaders, leaders ought to be identifiable. Not for the sake of of self-promotion, not for the sake of, of highlighting an individual's talent or ability, but for the sake of highlighting the fact that God has established shepherds. And if you don't know that, you don't know who they are, you can't possibly follow them. I talk to people sometimes who come into the church and they're new and, hey, well, great, well, yeah, I mean, do you normally go to church? Have you, do you come from another church? What's going on in that area? Oh, uh, yeah, I go to this church and they tell you a little bit about it. And, oh, who's, who's the pastor over there? If they hesitate for a moment... They immediately have told me how well they follow. Uh, oh, man, what's that guy's name? Uh, be, I know right now. I know what kind of relationship you have with the church. Let's see. Because if you, if you see leadership as God-ordained and set before you, then you run towards it because it's a gift from God. It's intended to bless our lives and care for us and bring grace into our lives. Now, if I have this pride thing going on in me, it says, oh, who does he think he is? He puts his pants on one leg at a time. I mean, we're all the same. It's the body of Christ. There's no distinction. If I have that idea, then I don't like leadership. I don't like it being promoted. I don't like it being spoken of. But I'm very unbiblical. If I arrive on that ground, I am so unbiblical. I can't even make a case for that biblically. Which brings us to scriptures, Hebrews thirteen seventeen. What is the admonition in scripture to the church? Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, think for a second who this is spoken to, because... Sometimes we just tend to read that and, and read right past it. There are, there are older men on the receiving end of this. There are older men in this passage being told, obey your leaders and submit to them. There are business owners. There are government officials. There are perhaps Roman soldiers who are reading this passage, who are in charge of people, 
who have pull and sway. Nobody tells them what to do. There are wealthy, rich individuals who have come up through life, and they are somebody. And they're being told, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why do I need to do that? That guy, look at the car he drives, for goodness sake. You can find all kinds of reasons why that guy shouldn't be somebody you'd obey and submit to. But here's why in the Bible. For they are keeping watch over your souls. Oh, I don't need that. Really. As nice as I can say this. You're a fool. If you don't think you need all the grace of God to keep watch over your soul, you are biblically ignorant. Because if the Bible says, I need it, I need it. Apparently, every one of us needs help with keeping watch over my soul. Every one of us. And God has designed it so that leaders play a role in it. Not the only role in it. I believe the fellowship of God plays a role in it. I believe the prayers of the saints play a role in it. The Holy Spirit plays the role in it. But the same God who says, I'm the shepherd, appoints shepherds. The same Holy Spirit who can do anything he wants at any moment in our lives says, I'll do it through this vehicle. And he appoints people to keep watch over our souls. Now, I, I don't, these are strong words here. I'm even uncomfortable. This is an uncomfortable verse for me to preach from. To stand and say, obey and submit to your leaders, it's very uncomfortable for me to even say to you. And the society that we live in has made it even much more difficult to say it. I, mean, I don't know what your view of pastoral ministry is. Questions. Do you see pastoral ministry as something to be optionally embraced and occasionally appreciated or something to be obeyed and followed? And we always, you know, appreciate your advice, you know. Hey, look, I need, I need a couple of thoughts here. Not that I'm going to do anything you're saying, but, you know, just bump some things off me here. What do you think? See, when we have relegated the, the pastor in our community, this is, a, this is a world idea, by the way. We've relegated pastoral influence in our life to, that's nice, but it's not necessary. Does that sound like this verse? This verse says, obey and submit because they keep watch over your soul. Is pastoral ministry for the purpose of marrying and burying? <laughs> or do you see it as essential to protect your soul in this life? Everybody calls a preacher when you want to get married. Everybody calls a preacher when somebody dies. But for everything in between those two events, <laughs> you may not hear from anyone. But yet the Bible says, these guys are keeping watch over your soul. How important of an issue is that? Well, let me cut to the chase here. Um, let me just make this point, and I'm going to have to stop at some point here, I know. As we've gone through this series, we have we've raised the issue over and over again of, of committed to things. We're going to be committed to things. Be committed to biblical leadership. We're going to be committed to church discipline. We're going to be committed to the authority of Scripture. 
Why committed to things? Why does a church come and have to have a commitment in it? Well, um, Jesus, Jesus tested the statements of people's lives. And he'd say things like this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you do not do what I say? It's easy to say things. It's another thing to really be committed to them. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, I know the Lord, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his words, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. How do do we know? How do we know that we really do believe something? We know it when we do it. If we don't do it, listen, you really don't know it. I'm committed. I'm a committed Christian. You know, if one more person, I've railed on this before, if one more person at one of these awards shows stands up and receives an award for the most ungodly music and lifestyle that you can imagine dressed like they're right off of some sleaze clothing store and say, I'd just like to thank God. Thank God what? Finish the statement. I'd like to thank God that he doesn't kill me on the spot. Thank God that I'm still breathing after what I'm just singing about. You know, that would be accurate. Do not act as though God is somebody in your life. It's vague words that don't have any meaning. God, that word doesn't have meaning anymore. I'd like to thank the Lord. Whoa, stop, time out. The word for Lord in the Greek is kurios. It means boss, owner. Is that who you like to thank? I'd like to thank the owner of my life. Oh, it doesn't look like he owns your life. It looks like you're still in charge. And we want to throw out these sentiments. You know, I, yeah, I'm, you know I, I love the Lord. You know, I'm a dedicated Christian. But you know, um, while I'm practicing sin, embracing a lifestyle that is it is sinful and it is self-consuming, but I, but I, you know, but I really do love the Lord. I'm not trying to be ugly here. I'm just trying to get you face to face with the Bible. The Bible would pull the rug from underneath your feet. Why? Because it really wants you to experience what it's like to love the Lord. To really love the Lord is to say no to that. I just can't. Well, then be as uncomfortable as you possibly can. You don't love the Lord. Don't use those words. See, words, they don't have any meaning today. Love the Lord. Practice sin. I'm committed to Christ. I mean, I don't really come to church all that much, but I'm committed to Christ. Wait, wait, time out. How can you possibly be committed to Christ and not be committed to what he's committed to? How do you say, I follow Christ, I'm a follower of Christ, and not go where he's going? See, if you're following Christ, he's moved. He's not where you are anymore. Where is he? He's amongst his people. He's right here in the midst of us. Where two or three or more have gathered together, there I am in your midst. If you're following Christ, you're here. You're in the midst of the people of God. Well, I just got problems. I mean, people have done this and that in the past. I'm sympathetic. But what you're saying in that moment is, I followed Christ up until the moment that somebody burned me. And then I stopped following him. See, don't throw out these sentiments that make me feel good. That, no, I'm a follower. I'm committed to Christ. No, no. Admit, I stopped following him at this point, eight years ago. Because this terrible thing happened. I thought you are in a great place. 
be able to say, but I want to follow again. Well, maybe something needs to get healed. Maybe God needs to do a work in that area of your life. Now, go ahead and come up. Let's close. The reason why I keep banging on this word commitment is, to, is for us to come to grips with, are we really committed to these things? You know, are we committed to biblical leadership in our lives? We're committed to that. That is a value that, that together we're going to come together and run towards leadership in the way in which the Bible promotes us doing that. But here would be a statement of commitment in this category that we would be seeking in our church covenant. The last part of your outline, it says, I agree that God calls men to lead the church who are given the responsibility to shepherd the local church on earth to have authority in that setting and to exercise spiritual oversight of the functions and fellowship of that particular body of believers and to do all this as humble servants who are given to care for and protect the people whom God has called his own children. I commit to submit to their leadership, to serve and offer support to the biblical direction they give for this local body and to pray for them. I commit to avoid divisiveness and the tearing down of those in authority and to seek biblical remedy if I have a disagreement or conflict with someone in a position of leadership in the church. So to be a part of the church, to really be a part of the church, is to be committed to what the Bible calls us to be doing. I just simply took phrases and concepts in the Bible and put them in a paragraph. This is not a Lakeview Christian Center thing. This is the Bible's words on how to relate to leaders. Leaders will disappoint you. You may have a conflict. They may sin against you. How do you respond? What happens in the church today is that leader usually never gets approached until gossip has run full circle around over here and they hear about it. Where did that idea come from? That's destructive. You know how many times I have heard somebody get accused of something that was simply a misunderstanding on that person's part? By the time it's run the gossip mill and 15 people have, have now found out about their version of what they didn't really understand. And now you're hearing about it. And now you've got to try and pick up the pieces. And, and what's happened is that person has poisoned 15 people from wanting to follow leadership. Listen, that's not a biblical value. Leaders screw up, but nowhere is our response to that supposed to be, don't follow them. Get away from them. And anything we do that tears that down, we should be committed to not doing that. The same way you're in a marriage. You should be committed to never running down your spouse in front of your children. You should be committed to that because you're shooting your children when you do it. Oh, but you don't know my wife. You, you don't know my husband. No, I don't. I just know that they're given as authority in your child's life. And if you damage authority, you're going to damage your child. So when you share some juicy little gossipy thing that tears down some leader who screwed up, didn't, shouldn't have, just have in your, in your, in your view, you're hurting the person you're talking to. Oh, but it's true. What I'm telling you is true. You're hurting the person you're talking to. And if you love them, if you're part of the body and you love each other, you don't want to do that. See, if we're, going to, we're, we're all going to get married here at the end of this series. And we're going to all get married together. And we're going to stand and, we're, and you're going to have to test your own heart. Am I willing to say I do to what the Bible says about being a Christian in the body of Christ? Will I say I do to that? 
or will I say, I don't know if I want to do that. You know what? I respect the difficulty that's here. It's the same difficulty of a God that says, take up your cross daily and follow me. I hope every one of you pause before you say, I'll follow you. I'll follow you. Jesus responded, the birds have nests and boxes have holes. Son of man's got nowhere to lay his head. You sure you want to follow me? I don't think you're thinking this through. Following me ends up with nails in your wrist. Are you sure you want to follow me? You want to be a part of the church? Are you sure you want to be a part of the church? Or have we thought it through like, I'm going to Winn-Dixie. You going to Winn-Dixie today? Yeah, me too. No commitment. No values. No expectations. That's not the church. Let's stand up together. Lord, what we are called to be a part of has historic proportions to it. The church on earth has always been and will always be the most significant gathering in human history. It holds and lives and promotes and reveals the truth of who you are. Lord, this world desperately needs a clear revelation of who you are. Some to be called to account for their lives. Others to find grace and run to salvation. The church is that place. So Lord, it matters how we live. It matters how we relate. It matters the values that we hold and the intentions we have toward one another. Lord, you have established, as we've read today, for reasons and wisdom that perhaps are only locked away in you, that you would take human elements, weak, corrupted by sin, very limited, and assign them the task of shepherding your people. God, if I hadn't read that in the Word, I would have to abandon it. It sounds like a bad idea. But I humbly have to say, it is your idea. So therefore, it cannot be a bad idea. And if there are problems that come as a result of that, Lord, then somehow your glory is in those moments of problems, being revealed in ways that are just going to blow our minds. But Lord, would you give us together, whether, whether some here are called to lead, or all of us are called to follow, give us a commitment to biblical leadership so that your church will be all that you have called it to be in our lives, in this generation, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I pray just one more thing? I want to pray for those that are here who are having to overcome being sinned against, neglected, abused, or hurt by leaders in their lives. Father, today's message for them is something that I'm sure that with one ear, they're eager to receive the benefit of what they see in the Word. And with the other ear, they hear the voice of the past. The pain, the disappointment. 
but for all that are here who have responded to past sins or even just weakness by guarding their lives and withholding their lives from the church. But would today be a day where you bring grace into that category of their lives and you let them know you have not abandoned the very church that perhaps was part of your pain. And God, if you have not abandoned these things, then we certainly must not. So Lord, would you give fresh faith to individuals and healing? Lord, perhaps there are relationships from the past that that need to be addressed. Lord, perhaps the response from this meeting for some is further prayer followed by a phone call to someone that something needs to be made right so some can go on into the full purposes that you have for them. So, Lord, let this be an opportunity for healing and redemption. God, who raises the dead, touch these situations and raise them up with newness of life and fresh joy. In Jesus' name, amen.